What's a great piece of advice that someone has given you? Oh, um, I think the best piece of advice was someone saying to me that you have to be able to look back at yourself every four years and be embarrassed at all that you didn't know. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I am joined by the one, the only. You know her as someone who lives in Brooklyn. You know her as someone who has, who lives above her, who's constantly working out, who's annoying her, and is screwing up the sound quality of her recordings. She's lovable. She's great. It's the one and only, the podcast producer extraordinaire, Sylvie Lubau. Sylvie, how are you? I'm great. I feel like the audience really gets me, you know? Or yeah. you get me. <laughs> I get you. I get you. Uh, it's great to see you. I know. First recording of 2024. I know. It's not the first episode of 2024. We've got so many incredible episodes coming out. We recorded one in 2023 that just came out last week. Jay Klaus, love that episode. Um, we have a great guest today, Radhika Dutt, who is the author of Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter, a book that gives organizations a methodology for systematically building world-changing products. She is an entrepreneur and a product leader who has participated in five acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. And she advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products that create fundamental change. This was such an exciting interview, super interesting. I think people are gonna get like a ton of advice out of this one. And, you know, I got that feeling in this one of like, man, this stuff is, I hope people really listen hard to this one because there's some real gold coming up. Some real gold. Real gold. But first, the show's called Talking Too Loud. We got to know what's got, <laughs> what's got each other talking to us. I and know, also, we got to I mean, know. This is the first time we've seen each other in this brand new year. So there's a lot to catch up on. There's so much. Okay, what am I talking too loud about? I am talking too loud about Vieques. Puerto Rico, hey where I went over Christmas. Everyone should go to there. <laughs> but first, read a Guardian article about how the U.S. was terrible to Vegas, <laughs> and then go. Um. <laughs> okay, so basically, you're going to go, but I'd like you to go with a little bit of guilt. So just go load with up guilt. on the guilt first. Go with guilt and like, yeah, go spend some dollars and like... Give Get it the economy to, moving. Yeah. yeah. Like to hear it. Yeah. Um, but the beaches there were so beautiful. Very like tropical, lush trees surrounding these white sands. Extremely calm water, which was like, maybe I've never been in really calm water before, but I was, mm. I was all about it. Did you see some uh, fish? I saw a stingray. Okay. It was so camouflaged, but I was like, something isn't right here. <laughs> Traced it back, found the barb tail, and I was you like... Saw the, you hit the barb. Does this hurt? <laughs> yeah. My sister actually did that once. Anyhow, I loved it. I kayaked in a bioluminescent bay. Oh, wow. Um, That's lovely. Saw wild horses running free. And do you feel like refreshed and recovered? Do you feel good? I need more of it. I'm ready to recover again. It. Okay. Yeah. So what do you think? Like monthly trip, Vieques, read the article, Vieques, I, I, There's something to be said for like making quarterly trips to beaches. Doesn't have to be Vieques. Be nice if it was, but. Yeah, maybe that's a good quarterly goal. Quarterly goal. I'm going to put it on my vision board. 2024. Yeah. 
<laughs> quarterly trips to beaches. What has you talking too loud, my friend? Well, my break was um, great. It was different. I was mostly at home um, and had a ton of family here. And it was just really fun. My kids have cousins of very similar ages to them. And they were just all playing so together nice. really well, which is like it's just a beautiful thing to watch. And it means it's also like actually relaxing for the parents and the adults yeah. because the kids are just so entertained. And so we just like watched a bunch of movies and hung out and it was great. And we did um, a yes day for the kids. Do you know what that is? I do. You say yes to everything. Yes. You say yes to everything. Yes. Inspired by a movie on Netflix. Yes. Day. Yes. And so it was really fun. I mean, the kids are like, we want ice cream for breakfast. They're like, great. They're like, we want candy after ice cream. They're like, great. They're like, we want to go to a trampoline park. Which was a delight. Went to a trampoline park for like four hours <laughs> and like just, bounced like crazy yeah. and did like ninja warrior things and like obstacle courses and laser tag and, you know, running up the... I'm having a delightful time. <laughs> yeah, I'm tracking my his workout the entire time, obviously, too. My heart rate's going, you know, the whole time. Burn like 2,000 calories <laughs> in this thing. Injure myself in three places. But it was so fun. Classic. Um, it was great. And then it was like just relaxing. I mean, it was like, uh, I, I feel very recovered and I didn't know that I needed it, but it was, it was, it was great. That's amazing. What, what a holiday season. Yeah. It was a delightful holiday season. Bonus. Uh, we do, um, secret Santa, my family. And Uh what I didn't expect is that my older brother got me for secret Santa and he just got into the big brother energy mode. Oh, wow. And I'm like the last person to open my presents on, Christmas. And I opened the first present from him. Actually, it's this mug. It's like a mug that's like, you're a great dad. I'm like, that's nice. And I opened the next thing and it's like Gran Turismo for PS5. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. Like, I have a PS5 and I, I, I can't play this. Whoever got this three doesn't know. And I opened the next thing and they just keep pulling presents out and it's like a wheel and pedals. Whoa. And then I'm like, oh. It's all happening. And then there was a PS5. And so now I have this like F1 sim thing and it's like the most fun thing ever. <laughs> Your dreams have truly come true. They came true. And you know, I never would have gotten it for myself for some reason. So <laughs> just a mental block on it. But um, I think he had a vision and he knew the target audience and he thought like, hey, this is how I'm going to be the greatest big brother ever. And I'm going to... He inspire wins. the joy of youth and gift giving for my younger brother, aka me. Just like our guest who's coming up is going to talk to all of us about product thinking, how to do it, how to build a vision. And so with that bizarre transition, we'll dive into the interview with Radhika right after the break. Hi, I'm Frank, the ad guy. Frank, the ad guy. Creating a top-notch marketing campaign can be a huge undertaking. It requires time, coordination, creativity, and finesse. And it leaves many of us wishing we had more help. But with HubSpot's brand new campaign assistant, you get exactly that. Start by choosing what content you'd like to create, landing pages, marketing emails, or ad copy. Then add a few key points like tone and platform. Sit back and let HubSpot's AI-powered tool do the rest. Campaign Assistant lets you work smarter, not harder. Learn more at HubSpot.com slash campaign assistant. Looking to harness the power of video for your business? Whether you're hosting webinars, onboarding new customers, or creating a spiffy landing page, video is key to making an impact. 
And that's where Wistia comes in. With our complete video marketing platform, we help you create, host, and share videos that not only get views, they also get results. And the cherry on top? Wistia's in-depth analytics and handy email forms. They're the perfect tools for lead generation and understanding your audience. So if you're ready to level up your capital V video marketing strategy, head on over to wistia.com slash TTL. That's W-I-S-T-I-A dot com slash TTL. And don't forget to follow at Wistia on social media for more tips, tricks, and video treats. And now back to the podcast. Radhika, so good to have you on the show. As you know, our podcast is called Talking Too Loud because when I get excited about something, I talk way too loud about it. I cannot control the volume of my voice. Um, we love to start the show by asking our guests, what has them talking too loud? So what has you talking too loud? First of all, you know, two passionate people talking too loudly. What can possibly go wrong? <laughs> so I'll share kind of what has me talking too loud. Uh, I was just ranting about this uh, this morning with a friend, actually. And I will share this rant with you. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's, it's, it's about AI and kind of how we're going about building AI. And what has me talking too loud is the fact that we are completely thoughtless at the moment in terms of how we're building AI. Um, I was listening to a podcast and uh, it was someone interviewing Sam Altman. Mm. And oh my God, that interview just pissed me off. <laughs> it was such, let me share that first yeah, yeah. question what that you he off? was asked. Yeah. He was asked, you know, this has been a year with so much change in AI. What were some of your reflections? And you know what his answer was? He said, well, I really haven't had time to reflect because it's mm. been so busy. And it's like, God almighty, you know, that is the epitome of what is wrong with our world right now mm. when we're building things without reflection, right? Yeah. Um, and don't even get me started in terms of how he answered this question of what's your vision for AI like 10 years down the line? His answer sounded something that was like, you know, half-baked sentences that Sarah Palin was putting out. <laughs> oh, <my God>. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait, Love it. That's not Love talking it. too loud. Okay. And his answer is something like to the effect of my vision is that everything will be great, that, you know, everyone will be employed in meaningful jobs. Uh, and, you know, there'll be very different jobs and there'll be silly things looking backwards and, you know, so different and blah, blah. But it'll be meaningful, you know, meaningful, just like it is for you and me. Like, none of that made any sense. <laughs> I think yeah. that is my rant and what gets me talking too loud. I think we need to reflect more deeply about what we're building, how we're building. We need to be vision driven uh, and we can get into more of that. <laughs> Well, that, you know, I do want to get into more of that. So obviously you believe in building around having a clear vision and, you know, the idea that someone could ask you a question and you would just have hopes and not a plan is concerning. And I, I kind of want to dig in on two fronts here. I want to dig in on the AI front because it's relevant to everybody. But I think first, let's talk about the vision. Like, what does it mean to have a great product vision? Yeah, great question to start with. I feel like, you know, a good vision 
requires us to unlearn so much of the toxic stuff that we've learned. What we've learned until now about a good vision is it has to be big, broad, aspirational, uh, something that's unchanging. And, you know, when you think about it, the whole world is changing all around us all the time. How can your vision possibly be unchanging? And that's the reality. When it's unchanging, it becomes a useless vision, right? And so when we discard those conventional ideas about what makes good vision and we rethink what a good vision is, here's what I've learned. One, it has to be actually detailed. It has to answer profound questions like, whose world are you trying to change? What exactly is their problem? And how are they solving it today? The third question is the most important, which is, why must we change status quo? Because honestly, maybe there's nothing wrong with status quo. We shouldn't just disrupt for the sake of it. Then we can answer the question, what does the world look like when we can say mission accomplished? And then finally, how are you going to bring it about with your product? This is finally the point where you talk about your product. Until this point, a good vision isn't even about yourself. Like if you take yourself out of this picture altogether, you should be able to describe a problem and a solution that you want to see solved, that needs to be solved in the world. And you would be happy to see it solved even if you were not there. Hmm. I think this is very interesting because I agree with you that like most people are taught vision is this big, broad thing that doesn't change. Our world is not only changing, it's changing faster than it ever has. How do you think people should be thinking about when to change or saying like, hey, this is my vision of where I think things are going to go. I see a gap. I should go build a product for it. Yeah, I think some of these are questions that you can't possibly know at the beginning. So let's say you come up with a product idea. You might have your best guess to these answers, right? And actually, in writing a vision, um, and I'll share the radical product thinking approach to writing such a vision, it's basically a fill-in-the-blank statement so that you don't fall in love with your own words, that you're open to change, open to questioning your own vision over time and saying, is this actually still valid? And so let me read out an example of a vision that I had for a startup, right? Uh, and the vision was, it would go like this. Today, when amateur wine drinkers want to find wines that they're likely to like, they have to pick out attractive looking wine labels or wines that are on sale. This is unacceptable because it leads to so many disappointments and it's really hard to learn about wine this way. We envision a world where finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies you like on Netflix. And we're bringing about this world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wines to your personal tastes and um, an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. And the thing is, right? I like it (laughs) as a wine drinker. (laughs) Right. And uh, see, I didn't tell you anything about the startup I had. But here I was just describing the vision and you knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. This vision changed over time. Like we had started with a different answer to the who. Like initially we thought, you know, it was all consumers. But then we realized, you know, there's there's a reason why we said amateur wine drinkers. Because it turns out, like on a wine drinking scale, people who are a level, let's say, one to ten, people who are above a level six where, you know, 10 is winemaker level, but above level six, they're snobbish. There's nothing they're going to learn from an algorithm. 
Yeah. So two to six was what we were targeting. This is stuff we learned along the way. And so my point is you fill out this vision statement to the best of your ability and you treat it as hypotheses and you discuss with your team what you're learning over time. And this is how you avoid the disease I call pivotitis. <laughs> Because in pivotitis, you know, you just have whiplash and your team swings from one idea to the next. But instead, this approach gives you a methodical approach, right? Like you discover over time, these are my answers and here's where I was wrong. You're able to point it out to your team and say, here's where we went wrong and what we're going to try next. So you learn when you need to change. It's not that pivots are always bad, but it's more like, you have two to three pivots before you run out of money or momentum. So we can't change randomly. We take every change with some gravitas. And this allows you to recognize that gravitas. So can you give an example, maybe for folks listening, that is like, what would be a bad vision in the <laughs> wine space? Like, what would something look like that you'd be like, oh, this is not going to help you? Okay, I'll give you a wine example. It would be empowering people to drink differently or like <laughs> that's the worst case right yeah, yeah. it's interesting because that's a good question chris and that was a that answer kind of clarified <laughs> it for me that's vague you don't really know who you're talking to you don't know what you want them to change or what exactly yeah. yeah i could take it one step better and this is kind of the slightly better vision but still just as useless that we would tend to go towards <laughs> it would be something it. like <laughs> Just as to be, useless. <laughs> <laughs> to be the leader in uh, wine education and uh, finding wines, right? Like, I have no idea what that means. Uh, how do you become a leader in this? Or to be the go-to platform for wine education and marketing. Like, I have no idea what a go-to platform even means. And so that's why we need this level of detail in terms of answering the who, what, why, when, and how, and a fill-in-the-blank statement so you're not in love with your own words. Because it actually has happened to me many times, you know, where you sit in these off-site rooms where you spend hours all together and you start with a blank sheet of paper and what you come out with is no better than where you started. I'm really trying to listen hard and think about the differences between the two examples that you've given and match it up with my own experience, right? Of, you know, creating a strategy and a vision. And we've updated and changed a lot. Like actually one of the things we've even changed when we've changed our strategy is we've said, okay, we need to update our culture because our culture should align to strategy. And we've actually changed our values um, at different periods of time because we look at values as how you make decisions. And so in that context, as I'm thinking about this, what I'm hearing is like, you're defining the current best understanding of... Uh, of how you will enact and interact with a market. And as your learning comes in, you're changing it and it becomes like a blueprint for the team, right? So it's like filling in all these blanks and all these details. Because the point you made of like, oh, I just want to empower everyone to change the way they drink wine. That's probably the most common form of vision that we see, right? Exactly. But that doesn't that is- include anything to help somebody make a decision, understand who to focus on, understand how they should be operating differently, Right? Is that that makes that's how that's you think exactly about this? Exactly. You hit the yeah. nail on the head. I think the way I summarize what you just said is that sort of a vision doesn't act like a filter. It's no you filter. need yeah. to be able to 
you know, hold up a feature or an opportunity against this vision and say, should I do this or not? And sometimes the answer should be a resounding no, don't do it, right? Yeah. And I think what happens is when you have this vision, like, you know, empowering people to drink differently or something like that, pretty much anything goes, right? And that's why it's not a good vision. Yeah. I, I think we should talk about the filters because I think when you're starting, it feels like I just need anyone to be my customer, please. Like, I just need to survive. Like, how will I get a customer? There's this very, very strong pull, especially I think first time entrepreneurs that you're like, right? Like, Radical, will you be my customer? And you're like, yeah. Like, Sylvie, will you be my customer? Like, yeah. yeah. Call and actually, the things you want are, yeah, Sylvie won't be. Obviously, we know that. <laughs> but like, you get people and they pull you in different directions. It becomes very hard to make decisions. And then if you don't know who your customer is, and you don't know how to make the decisions, like, it's hard to keep momentum going on building what you build or even what your messaging should be. And so this filter thing is like, it's very important at the beginning. And it's also extremely important as you're scaling, right? Like, if you don't have a filter for what people should be saying no to. You can't learn if the thing you're trying to do is working. Yeah. I was actually working with a company just a few weeks ago, and we had exactly this problem that I had to convince the leadership team of. You know, the leadership team kept saying, but we want to be ubiquitous. You know, there are yeah. all these different personas and uh, customer types that we want to target. If we want to be ubiquitous, we can't ignore any of them. We have to have all of them yeah. in our vision. It's such a classic mistake. Oh, my God. <laughs> Because it's you're so trying to be everything for everyone, right? And the reality is you're stretched so thin, you're delivering nothing of breakthrough value for anyone. Um, and it reminds me of this uh, quote that my publicist said to me when I was talking about who's my target for the book. And, you know, sometimes it's really hard to remember this for yourself because it's your mm. product. It's so dear yeah. to you. And when I was talking about who my target market was, and I was telling her, you know, about all the groups that I want to target in the long run. She reminded me, yes, yes, I agree with you. But let's start with who has an urgent and desperate need for yeah. your book today. And then, you know, they will evangelize it to everyone else over time. Right. And that's exactly the attitude we need to have. Like who has that urgent and desperate need for your product? And that's who your vision should be focused on today. And you know what? Once you get with the program that your vision doesn't have to stay constant, that, you know, even one a quarter down the line or let's say six months or a year down the line, maybe you have uh, you've acquired that group that you targeted. You can then say, OK, here's the next group I'm going to target yeah. with my vision. Right. So it's OK to change your vision. You don't have to try to be ubiquitous by going after everyone and everything right from day one. I think that most people underestimate how big their markets can be. Yeah. And the internet too has like, they underestimate just how far you can take something. I think what happens for people is that there's this fear of missing out, right? That there's this fear that if I focus my vision on this user group, that I'm going to miss out on targeting these other groups. Uh, and they think then that this filter is going to mean I'm going to look at this other opportunity and say, oh, I'll never do anything else for this other user group. So I'll give you an example. You know, let's say you're building a marketplace where you have both buyers and sellers. And then I'm, uh, I'm often asked, well, in that case, my vision, shouldn't it be about both buyers and sellers because I'm targeting both? Uh, how can I possibly exclude one group? Because that's, that's where that fear sets in. Does that mean I'll ignore, like if I pick buyers, then I'm going to ignore all the sellers, yeah. right? 
And this is where I think the radical product thinking approach to prioritization comes in. So the way I answer this is, don't try to put everything into your vision that it's about buyers, sellers, you know, and everyone else. Uh, pick whose world you're really trying to change. And we will target the other group in our strategy or in our priorities, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing I say is, you know, the way we want to think about it is when you think about prioritization, you think about both vision as well as survival. So now that we have this clarity of vision, right, that's the long term that we have clarity on. And the way we make decisions and prioritization decisions specifically is we're balancing long term against short term. So we say, okay, if I draw this up on an X and Y axis, right, I can help visualize my trade-offs between this yin and yang. So Y axis is vision fit and the X axis is survival, which is short term. So now I can say, okay, things that are good for vision and survival, those are the easy decisions. So, you know, unfortunately, as companies, we often stick to mostly those easy decisions. Yeah. But sometimes we need to make decisions that are investing in the vision. This is, you know, good for the vision, but maybe not good for the short term, like not good for short term survival. And other times we might do things that are good for short term, but not good for longer term vision. Right. And that's what I call vision debt. <laughs> This is like technical debt, but even harder to pay off, right? Because you can't fire customers. And so now if I think about this context of the vision and, you know, I have buyers that I'm targeting, but maybe, you know, the reality is I can't piss off sellers too much. So if I think about vision versus survival, you know, sometimes maybe I need to do something for sellers because I can't keep pissing them off. And so I might be taking on vision debt if I'm doing something for survival. So it's good for the uh, seller. Yeah. And maybe it's not that great for uh, the vision fit because that's for the buyers, but I'm going to take on a limited amount this, of this vision debt. And I have to do that. And there might be other times where, you know, maybe it's not good for the seller, but it's really good for the buyer. And that's investing in the vision, but it's not good for survival in the short term. So you have to think about, you know, things more holistically. We're not going to ignore one single user group. And no, this does not mean that you have two different visions. If you are ever tempted to write two separate visions because you have buyers and sellers, think about Freddie Mercury's song that says one vision. He sang one vision for a reason. <laughs> Talk about how you know when you should expand the vision. People are buying your product. They're excited about it. The things that you're building are in the right quadrant mostly. Well, when do you expand it? When do you take on sellers? Do you never take on sellers? Or how do you know? Because it's such a hard, I'm asking this because it's a hard question. And I think it's really interesting to hear how people think about it. But like, how do you know when you should expand? Yeah, great question. I think the first thing to explore is, does expansion, like what is ideal for your expansion right now? One might be expanding your wallet share within your current customer base. Right. And this is where you might think of adding new things to your product or perhaps tiers or things like that, where you can extract more dollars from your current customer base. And then there is the next step, which is where you say, OK, can I look at a new customer base uh, and expand my market share? And I think there are two different questions, right? Like mm. the first thing is in terms of expansion, often expanding wallet share within the same market 
is the first step that you want to try. Like that's the first level expansion yeah. because it's easier to market into the same group. Like there's less investment that's usually required to go to that same market and sell them more things. And so that's the first thing we want to try, right? But let's say you have pushed for this wallet share, or if you pushed any more for wallet share that you're just going to risk pissing off your existing group, then it's really time to start thinking about your expansion of market share. Or the other way to think about it is, you know, expanding market share might mean that you're investing in the vision where now your vision is ready to expand, like there isn't so much survival risk, like you yeah. have money in the bank, etc. where now I can invest in the vision and spend time in growing that vision when short term, maybe it's going to run a deficit in terms of revenues, right? And so that's the next step. And I think the key questions there is before you can embark on this investing in the vision, first, Define your vision for this new group because this new uh, market category, and I've made this mistake or like the company where I was working, we made this mistake. We assumed that we were in a particular market, that this adjacent market that, you know, it, it was in the warehousing business that, well, their warehousing needs were very similar to another company or another industry's warehousing needs. After all, you know, you're just moving things in and out of a warehouse. How different can it be, Right. But it turns out, like, let's say you're moving frozen foods um, versus, let's say, you're moving beverage. It turns out that those market dynamics are very different. If you leave frozen food out, that gets spoiled. And maybe like a box of beef costs a lot, right? And so what is needed in a product that moves frozen food is very different from, let's say, if you're moving product in a beverage company where... Uh, the beverage itself costs pennies on the dollar. So you don't care if it sits out for a while, right? And so once market dynamics and the business dynamics are different, you're fundamentally dealing with a different customer base and their pain points are different. So what you need is a strategy where you have a really good understanding of who exactly is this customer persona, this new market that you're expanding into, what are their pain points? You cannot assume that those pain points are so similar. You actually need user research to say, have I observed these pain points? Like, how are they different from my existing markets? What does it mean for my product and the solution? Like, what does it mean in terms of what I'll have to construct in my product to be able to deal with this differently, etc.? And so that expansion is based on how much can I invest in all of this? And so you're going into it with your eyes wide open in terms of what it's going to require in terms of that investment in a vision. Got it. So it's like, you're kind of saying, as you get to be more long-term, you get to start to ask the questions about, uh, that's probably a good time to be saying like, okay, now we can, we can be broader in what our vision can be, which means we can sustain more risk now, we can sustain more investment. And then your advice seems to be probably expanding around your current market probably safer bet than going very far afield. Um, but it's a lot of this is a balancing act, right? It's like, how do you get it right? Um, and it's a, which is so hard. I think this is a lot of the building of companies. It's like, it's, it's hard to know if you're doing the right thing or not at all. <laughs> like, are you, <laughs> it's like, should I just keep doing what I'm doing? Cause this is really working and we're just going to get better and better. Or should I be expanding and changing? It's a very hard problem. And, and when you were talking about the differences in markets, I was talking to an entrepreneur earlier today who, um, very cool startup, grew a bunch, but we're catching up. And he's like, yeah, like, I think 
we were too sophisticated for our market. Mm. And when we got into it, it was like actually cost matters more than we realized. And our entire premise was set up that like it mattered, but not that much. And so while they were successful, it was not what he dreamed of being. And it was this interesting, very, very small difference that was you kind of only know when you're in it. But when you're in it, it's like, man, costs really matter here. And that means that if you're not set up for that in the first place with the product you're building and everything else, like it's not going to work out. Exactly. And I think, you know, more on this question of when is the right time and what is the right expansion strategy? I like to think about Napoleon's wars when I think about this, right? There you go. <laughs> There's a reference. Did you, you see like. the new Napoleon? The I movie? haven't. No, okay. it's too intense for me. Yeah. <laughs> but if I think about Napoleon's wars, right, the further away you are from home turf, the yeah. harder it is to fight that battle. Yeah. And very often we have this hubris to think, well, Amazon is doing it. So clearly I can too. Yeah. And I'll expand from this turf to that turf, right? And we have to recognize that that may not be the right thing for your organization. Like you don't have the ability to sustain that level of risk. Uh, and so it's a very honest It's a copying like, thing, right? Isn't it? It's just like, it's so common. It's unreal where you yeah. see some other company that's successful and everyone's like, this company is objectively successful and let's, they make a podcast <laughs> and it's like, oh, they have podcasts. That must be why they're successful. I should make a podcast because <laughs> if they're successful, I should do it. Like you don't realize that they have a very specific strategy with their podcast. They're trying to talk to specific people. They're trying to, whatever the, the thing is. And then you're like, I don't understand what's not working. This happens so much. And so I, yeah. I just feel like it's this funny thing of like, people are willing to engage to use the Napoleon analogy. They're willing to gauge that the wars are very far away because they see someone else doing it. So it seems less risky. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's actually far more risky to try to use someone else's strategy than having your own that you understand. Yes, I think what you said, I just want to delve into that a little bit. I feel like we often want to copy someone else's strategy. And the reality is your business, your business fundamentals, your business model might be very different. And so your strategy should really be grounded in your customer base, like what are their pain points and a solid understanding of it. At every point, we have to keep questioning ourselves in terms of how much of our understanding of our customer base is a bunch of assumptions versus like yeah. what is actually real. And so this is why I talk about, you know, the RDCL, uh, that's the mnemonic, the radical strategy is RDCL strategy. The R stands for real pain points. They're real versus imaginary. And we have to keep yeah. questioning these assumptions to make sure that they're real. Yeah. Well, just as someone who has like, I've been in it and I've fought some of the wars I shouldn't have fought. It sucks. It sucks later, especially because sometimes like there's things that we've done that did kind of work that we were copying from somebody else, but we did it at exactly the wrong time. Like we did it way too early and we couldn't sustain it or we did it and it kind of worked, but it was like a massive distraction opportunity cost from like something else we should have done. And it's so tempting because you think you are reducing risk and even pricing models, something that confuses people too. And, and it's funny cause like the, the assumption thing, like the way we look at that now is when we make product roadmaps, we do them triannually. So we do on four month cycles. Every team has a customer problem that they're working on. They create a roadmap, 
But then as it hits reality, we're going to learn that some of the things we thought were real are not, and you're going to have to adjust. And so the system, it took us a long time to figure out how to create a system that was like self-correcting and, and driven by this real insight. And then it becomes really, really obvious on things to do that are often very simple. They fit in beautifully with your strategy. They make tons of sense. And you're not copied from anywhere. People looking at us are sure like, oh, that's that makes sense. I should do it because Wistia did it. It's like, that doesn't mean you should do it. Like it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, I'm just hitting this point so hard because it's, it feels so tempting. And honestly, I feel like it's glorified. Like a lot of this yes. stuff is like, this is what we're looking for. We listen to a podcast. Like what's the one hack? Oh, I'll get this hack and then it'll work. And it doesn't work. Oh, that's confusing. I try to, it doesn't work. And you do all this short term stuff, trying to copy other people's pieces of their strategy. And then you don't do the right long-term thing. Yes. And you know what? It's not just that we copy other people's strategy. We also copy other people's approach to measuring success. So, you know, there are all these popular metrics that are so tempting to measure, right? And so not just that we copy strategy, but then we say, okay, well, if we have a high engagement rate from users or a high number of daily active users and time spent on site and blah, blah, just these same old metrics, right? Then, Then we're doing really well. Um, And I have a really funny story where there was an entrepreneur who was sharing with me his metrics, right? And all of these numbers looked fantastic. Uh, And this entrepreneur, what he was building was, like, he was inspired by the suspended coffee movement, uh, which is basically what started in um, Naples about 100 years ago, where you pay for two coffees, one you consume, and one is paid forward as an act of kindness for someone. Okay, that's not what I thought this was. That's not what I thought. I thought we were talking about levitating coffee, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Uh, he wanted to create an app to be able to spread kindness in the world, right? So that people would okay. buy someone coffee. Cool and, idea. Yeah. Yeah, cool idea. And so he had all these fantastic numbers of daily active users, time spent on the app, et cetera, et cetera. But there was one number that was completely flawed and said that the app was not working. It was the question of how many people were spending their money to buy someone a coffee. And the answer to that was zero. Zero. (laughs) So everyone was on the app to find themselves a free coffee. No one was actually buying someone a coffee. Mm. And so what did we do? Like once we said that's not the right thing to measure, let's start with a different strategy. Mm -hmm. So then we said, okay, wait a minute. How do we get people to actually spend their own money on buying someone a coffee? So we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give each person two coffees, one that they must consume and the second that they must gift. Right. And so we started giving people two coffees and they started to just learn to gift the coffee to other people without spending money. And uh, the way we funded this was with brands. So that's the other part of the strategy. Like, how are you going to fund it? And so brands started to fund this so that they could get behind this message of spreading kindness. And so we built this feature of giving people two coffee. And you know what we saw in terms of results? 27% of people who were gifting free coffees, we're now spending their own money. So the way you That's measure cool. success, yeah. the way you formulate your vision, and then the strategy that you create, like all of those have to be aligned. And that is the crux of radical product thinking and being vision driven. So the idea is basically, you start with this clarity of vision, you then create a strategy that is this RDCL strategy, which you can learn more about in the book. You then translate it into a set of priorities, thinking about vision versus survival, which is long-term versus short-term. 
And you derive metrics from success, just like I talked about in this example. You derive metrics from success from your vision and strategy as opposed to copying others. I love that. Um, so you're saying there's a book. <laughs> there is a book. <laughs> Tell us about the book. What is this book? So the book is called Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. And it's wherever books are sold, Amazon or your local bookstore. Um, and I'll say one thing about the book that is near and dear to my heart, that it doesn't just include uh, all of these, you know, Silicon Valley examples. Uh, I was really thoughtful in terms of including examples from all around the world. Uh, it includes examples of people of all sorts, but it's not just a book that is a product book. Like you read this book and yes, it's about how you can build world-changing products, but it helps you think differently about what is a product. Anything can be your product if it's your mechanism to create change. Whether you know, you're know you thinking about a policy, so I work with the Central Bank of Singapore, they have started viewing policy as a product because a yeah. policy mm -hmm. creates a change in the market. And it is a product. It is a product, right? Yeah. And whatever creates a change that you want to bring about, that mechanism is your product. A UX to a policy might be a form that you're filling out. But once you start thinking about your product, you can start engineering change systematically, just like we talked about, starting with a vision, strategy, etc. And what was the vision that led you to the book? Uh, I love this question. It was There was a product vision behind this. And my vision was that, you know, I wrote this book for people who are thoughtful, ethical, passionate people who care about what they are building and their contribution in terms of their work and the product that they're building, who want to build world-changing products. And I felt like it's really hard for them to know how to build products. Like they really have to just learn through trial and error, right? And learn all these hard lessons over time and they build an intuition. And so for them, I wanted to give a step-by-step -step process for building world-changing products. That was the world that I envisioned. And that was the reason behind the book, like to give this step-by-step -step methodology with a very clear framework that becomes a mindset and gives them muscle memory. I love that. That's so great. Um, I have one more question, then we're going to get into the rapid fire segment. So, but and this question is a little bit, um, I, I don't know that you can even answer it, but I'm going to try, which is, so you've written this book, you have this vision of helping people build better products. Um, we're all looking at advice all the time. How do you really get through to people when they don't realize that this is, that this might be the truth? So what I mean by that is like, there's like infinite advice out there that we can go and look for. And one thing that I've noticed is that every once in a while I'll come across and I was like, this resonates so deeply. Like I have a hard one life lesson that disaligns with, and this person put this better than I ever could. This is real. And I want to tell people that. And I know you have such a passion for this. Have you found a way in your own seeking advice, um, in your own education, um, in writing this book to feel like you know when advice is real and should be taken? Oh, I love this question. Um, when do I know? So to summarize the question, when do I know that this advice should be taken? Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I find that the best advice is basically stuff that makes me think differently, that shakes me up and says, 
wow, I hadn't thought about that. It gives me a brand new perspective, right? I think it's it's exactly as you said. It just resonates with you to the core that this is good advice. And in writing the book, right, if I go back to our earlier premise, I wasn't writing this book for everyone. This isn't going to resonate for everyone. Like there are people who are going to be high on the Kool-Aid of Silicon Valley and, you know, who worship Sam Altman. And they are not the same people who would read this and resonate and, and find this this resonates. In fact, I got a lot of pushback on this book where my entire section about digital pollution and the ethics of building products, like there were people who felt like that does not belong in this product book. Like we should just be able to build products and the free market economy will figure out what is the right stuff we build. And, you know, there are people for whom this book won't resonate as a result, right? But there are other people, the kind that I described in my vision, I think for them, it really hits them as this resonates with me. And I think those people would then talk about it. And that's what I've found. Like, I find that, you know, for ourselves, we take advice when it makes us think differently and it's authentic. Um, It's advice that comes from the heart. It's not someone trying to sound big. They're talking from their experiences and all of the mistakes that they've made. And it's that human Uh, advice where you're hearing it from someone who's not condescending or talking down to you, but really has seen the hardships of these experiences. And and the book isn't about myself, right? Like the vision that I have isn't about me spreading a word. It's really about a problem that I see in terms of how we build products and can we do it differently? So I think that's kind of... Good advice goes to, do you see a problem that needs to be solved? It's not even about yourself. What an answer. I love that so much. Wrapped the vision into the book, everything. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay. We're going to go into the rapid fire segment. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. First thing that pops to mind, we'll do it quickly. Are you ready? (laughs) As as ready as I'll ever be, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Rumor has it you can speak nine languages. Do you have a favorite? Italian. Italian. But I go through phases. You know, Italian is kind of my second mother tongue almost. Uh, Well, third, aside from English. But but I go through phases. There are days when I'm in love with French and I'm reading French books just to get better at it. Awesome. Um, (laughs) What's a great piece of advice that someone has given you? Oh, Um, I think the best piece of advice was someone saying to me that you have to be able to look back at yourself every four years and be embarrassed at all that you didn't know. I found this advice to be so helpful. I find that the scale for me is more like six months (laughs) than every six (laughs) months I look back at myself and I'm embarrassed at what I don't know. But that gave me a Uh, different framing altogether, like this freedom to make mistakes, to learn, and that it's okay. You should be embarrassed. It gives you a a sense of the pace at which you're learning. I love that. Um, What's a great piece of advice that you've given someone else? Oh, okay. I think this is going to be a controversial one. Perfect. (laughs) But here it goes. Uh, (laughs) This is something that I've said to women, minorities, Um, And it was something that someone said to me that made a huge difference. I was fundraising 
And uh, this was for my startup, the, the wine startup, actually. I was fundraising and I found that it was incredibly hard to raise VC funding. I managed to raise angel funding. But, you know, you'll, if you look up stats around funding for women, uh, the stats are dismally low. 2% of VC funding goes to women. Uh, and out of that, you know, I think only 0.06 goes to black women. I mean, it's absolutely dismal, yeah, it's right? Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a point where I was raising funding and all these VCs said to me, you know, wow, I love this idea. We should keep talking, but nothing ever materialized. And I remember talking to someone and I said to them, you know, what advice do you have for me? Like, eventually I'll get funding, but like, what can I do to overcome all of this bias? And the, the advice she gave me was, you know, you may not raise funding, just don't internalize failure. I thought that was the biggest and most eye-opening piece of advice I've ever heard from someone about overcoming bias. My assumption has always been this idea of meritocracy, that if you work hard enough, that you will be able to overcome anything. And very often, I think for women and minorities, when you don't overcome sometimes, you internalize failure because after all, it is a meritocracy. Like if you work hard enough, you can overcome. But the reality is there are times when you cannot, but don't don't internalize the failure. That doesn't ever mean give up fighting. Keep fighting, but don't internalize failure. It's not your fault if it does not happen. Wow. That's, that's incredible. That okay. Um, <laughs> these are lighter. The these are much are lighter. lighter. Uh, <laughs> name something not work-related you're really good at. Oh. <laughs> uh, painting. I paint and do art. Uh, oh, I'll show you my piece of art that is actually behind me. That is what something I have done. Oh, oh wow. cool. That's um, beautiful. Thank you. You might have to edit this out. While well, that'll be fine. Don't worry. It'll be it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. I'll have to make so many admissions here. Um <laughs> I like the Bruno Mars song of you can't count on me. <laughs> I'll stop there. That's good. Yeah. We've no, we've never had anyone sing the answer. But that's that's that was the first. Um, okay. And what's your favorite season? Winter, spring, summer, fall? Summer, definitely. I like hot weather. It makes me happy. There you go. Um, Radhika, thank you so much. Where can people best connect with you to learn more? They can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I always love to connect with people and hear what resonated for them. Uh, they can get the Radical Product Thinking book. It's in bookstores anywhere. Uh, they can also get the free Radical Product Thinking Toolkit, which is on the radicalproduct.com website. Amazing. Um, thank you so much. This was super fun. Thank you. I had such a blast in this conversation. It was so great chatting with you. We'll be right back after this break. Hey guys, it's me again, Frank the Ad Guy. And I'd like to tell you about another phenomenal show on the HubSpot Podcast Network. It's called Created. 
Hosted by former YouTube employee John Yushai, the show gives listeners an inside look at the creator economy with guests like Logan Paul, Paris Hilton, Jason Derulo, Jake Paul, George Lopez, and more. After working at Instagram and YouTube for eight years and writing for Forbes, John shares his best practices for building a business as a creator, improving creative processes, and staying ahead of the latest content trends. Check it out at HubSpot.com slash podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now back to the show. A lot of energy in that one. She's she's like, uh, you can tell how much she really loves to think about building products and being vision driven instead of iteration led. And it's like, it's a little bit contagious, the energy that she's bringing. I feel it's it. great. Yes. And I, and I think it's interesting because when we talked about this piece of short-term versus long-term thinking mm -hmm. and also like shortcuts versus the long way of doing things, it's really hard. Like everyone's out there. They're trying to grow. They're trying to figure out what to do. And even if you're growing, how do you grow more? How do you expand? These are, these are big questions. And it's the most natural thing in the world to see something else that's working and think, I should do that. But the truth is, as we talked about in this interview, and I think it's really, really hit home for me, it's you have to do things that match into the vision and the strategy of what you're really trying to do that actually are serving your customer. And if you get too far away from the core, it becomes very hard to maintain these things. It becomes hard to make them work. It becomes a big distraction. If you're an early stage startup, like it's likely to make you fail. And so, yeah, it's just like, there's so much in this. And sometimes I feel like it's easy to say something and hard to grapple with what it really means. And a lot of this interview was like that. Yeah, and I, I totally recommend uh, listeners, viewers, checking out her book because she breaks down really the methodology behind this like vision thinking um, in such a clear and compelling way. Right in the introduction, actually, she gives an example about Boeing, um, basically like iterating on a model of airplane to try to compete with like this new style of airplane but they were so busy being distracted by like the competition that they didn't realize that like the short-term iterations weren't actually working. And so it's interesting to think about like where people can get clouded in their vision. Like, you know, if there's a ton of market pressure, like everyone's shipping fast, everyone's building products fast, like you wanna be fast, 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 but like, does it actually serve you? I don't know, It. I'm kind of a little bit rambling, but really thinking about what compromises your vision, what clouds your vision, and then how you can kind of like jump out of that mindset to remind yourself why you have the vision in the first place, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I think it's making it, as she's talking about, specific enough. Right. Because then you can tell if the things you're trying are working or not. And and it's very easy to do. Like, it's it's an example of it's like easy to write down a big, bold vision that's not specific. But then it's hard to know if you're making any progress towards it. Totally. Yeah. 
Full yeah. of nuggets, full of gold. It was one of those interviews where we stopped recording and we kept talking. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. It was, it was a really, really lovely episode. If you have feedback for us, if you want to hear that, please let us know. We'd love, we'd love to hear from you on that. And of course, um, if you like the show, you can rate and review it wherever you listen to it. That's incredibly helpful. It helps get the word out there. Hey, if you see something like this episode and you think, oh, I think someone would benefit from this. Copy the link, send it over. <laughs> you know, we won't stop you. Um, I'm basically just trying to get you to laugh, Sylvia, during this section. That's all I'm trying Success! to do. You can always email us um, questions or feedback or guest suggestions at ttlpod at wistia.com. We love the guest suggestions. A lot of those suggestions have helped us find the folks that you are watching and listening to every other week. We have a ton of incredible guests coming up. I cannot wait for these episodes to drop. And what else am I supposed to say, Sylvie? What else are we supposed to do to wrap this thing up? I think you got it. Amazing. All right. Well, first one recorded in 2024 in the books. Nailed it. We'll see you soon. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.